any questions that are standing in the way of full enlightenment? The same, the same train of thought keeps coming back? Or I can't remember what any of them are. They're, they're all very short. And I, I can't even remember what they are, but I know that that's what they were. Short little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember any of them, what it was, the content. The question was about, sometimes late in the day, uh, there will be a series of uh, four or five thoughts in a train. And once that starts, they seem to keep coming like that in a sitting. The question being... (laughs) (laughs) Mostly it's not to... um, have the mind become reactive about the fact that that's happening. Because you're not inviting those thoughts to come, I hope. Uh, And sometimes there will be cycles, you know, when thoughts will come in series like that, especially when mm, there's a phase of a little lower energy. If it's only four or five thoughts in a row, if it's fairly quick, um, and your mind doesn't react to the fact that it's happening, but and it happens, and then at a certain point you become aware, and then you're back again on the breath or sensations. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about it. There's, there's, there's nothing you can do about that. Well, it's not four or five thoughts. It's like four or five short little scenes. Mm-hmm. Little mm-hmm. If you notice that it's happening mm, at times generally when the energy is lower, If that seems to be the um, milieu out of which uh, this is happening, what you could do is to try and raise the energy level a little bit. One way of doing that is either by turning the noting up, the volume up a little bit. You could also note a few more objects and give the mind more work to do as a way of creating more energy. And that might just give you enough more clarity to pick that, those mm, little series of thoughts or images up more quickly, right at the beginning. Um, it's about uh, like mind grind, where it's a thought pattern that comes obsessively, mm-hmm. the same rep, mm-hmm. over and over and over again, over weeks and months. <laughs> <laughs> The question was what to do about obsessive thoughts 
that come over and over again, the same one or the same pattern over days and weeks and months and years. There are several strategies, several levels strategy to take with that. The foundation for employing any of them would be to look first at the attitude or reaction of the mind to the fact that it's happening. And it becomes clear even from the tone of voice of the question. You don't like it. <laughs> the not liking it is in part what's feeding it. Resistance feeds the object as much as attachment or clinging. It's like if you take two playing cards and you rest them against one another, they give support to each other and they can stand. You take one away, the other one falls down by itself. And so the very first step in dealing with that kind of very, very deeply conditioned obsessive pattern would be to become very mindful of the reaction to it so that you identify with the reaction less and less and in that, in that way stop feeding the pattern. Because as long as you're resisting, no matter what else you do, you may be cutting it here and feeding it from underneath. And so it keeps coming back. So the first step is becoming accepting. Really accepting, not, not a pretense of acceptance. And not a bargain, not I'm accepting if. But where you really get okay. Now you have to be very, very clever. <laughs> this may sound Machiavellian, but it's done with a great heart. There's this obsessive pattern coming again and again and again. First step is to get really accepting and open. And then when it comes, you chop its head off. <laughs> but that has to come from an accepting space that chopping its head off cannot be done with aversion. Otherwise, it's going to be like, what's that, the hydra? You know, you chop one head and 10 or 100 emerge. It's actually possible to do that. By chopping the head off, what I mean is that from that place of acceptance, where there's not aversion in the mind, not judgment in the mind, you're just seeing, really with a quality of interest, you want, you want to understand how this process is going on. So you get okay, you get accepting. The thought comes, or the image, and as soon as it comes, and you're really vigilant for it, as soon as it comes, enough. But in a loving way. Often that is enough to really break the pattern. The combination of those two, of acceptance and cutting. Sometimes it may not be enough. Sometimes you'll do that. And it's worth practicing. It's not that the first time you cut the thought off as it, as it arises. Certainly one time of cutting is not going to be sufficient. Right? And so practice that for some time, each time they arise. But if you find after a period of time that the 
the mind is still obsessing with that pattern, then you can imply, employ a second-level strategy. And that really is the application of the understanding of dependent origination. And it goes like this. The thought in that sense, or the image, is the object right, of mind. This contact. It's contact with that object. Along with the contact is a certain feeling. Contact conditions feeling. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, but in something that's obsessive, it's usually pleasant or unpleasant. If we're not mindful of the feeling quality, if, we don't, if we're not really catching the pleasantness or unpleasantness of it, then that will condition some kind of holding um, and grasping at it. Very often what happens is we become so involved with either trying to get rid of it or the content of it that we miss really seeing clearly this quality of it being pleasant or unpleasant. When you can focus the mind on that aspect, and so there's a thought or a, an image, a vision, and you're, you're, you're experiencing quite directly pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. In that space of mindfulness, the mind is not hooked. It's not identified. It may sound a little theoretical in describing it, it actually can work. There was, there was one retreat I was doing when I was having this obsessive thought. It was, a, it was a fantasy, and it was pleasant, and it would come again and again and again. Uh, and I tried the cutting, and that wasn't, wasn't working. And then I started looking at the pleasantness of the fantasy, of the image. And it was amazing. It was like magic. In the moment of becoming mindful of it, the whole thing disappeared. You know, and it was really a very direct verification of how dependent origination works. Right? Contact conditions feeling, conditions craving. Okay, is the thought about the pain or the thoughts unrelated? No, the thoughts now are just beginning to reveal this whole uh -huh. structure mm -hmm. of like hidden stuff. Mm -hmm. Can you drop into your body with it? Uh -huh, I'm just starting to. In, in that regard, I think that's the key to allowing yourself. It's not so much getting, uh, getting caught in the obsessive thought, but really dropping down. Because what, you, what you're describing now is not simply a mechanical obsession in the mind, but some process that's starting to unfold, you know, a, a, a deep process that has been 
uh, covered up. And in that respect, you would want, I think, to open to it and allow it. And one way is to drop down feeling the sensations of it and the energy of it in the body. Uh, There's a space, there's a space in between the uh, feeling of it and the thought. In other words, there are these feelings which are starting to come up, a fear about it, and because there's a fear of really allowing yourself to feel it, the mind is churning out all these thoughts. Is that correct? I don't really know right now. Um, from what you described, now what it sounds like is that the thoughts are a rebound from an identification with the fear about whatever's going on, you know, those, those emotions, those powerful energies. If you're not mindful of the fear, then it's going to continually fuel the thoughts as a protection. If you can begin to feel the emotional energy that's there, be aware of the fear that's in the mind, get okay with the fear, and you really focus on the fear as the object. And you have to be very soft. You really have to... You know, the it's okay mantra. As you get okay with the fear, it will be easier to, to softly and gently allow yourself to feel what's underneath it. Don't rush it. I mean, it's sort of this process has a life of its own. You know, and it sounds like something's coming up. Last, when was it? A few nights ago, uh, I mentioned that it was dessert time. It's a good dessert. Oh, it really is. It's yeah. the pain I had it. Yeah. Yeah. Get okay with the fear, because that will open the door to you being with that, that energy. And it's hard. It's hard to, to really accept fear, you know, rather than resist it. You really have to soften a lot. No, we've extended it for three months. <laughs> Did we forget to mention it? <laughs> Did you hear the question? The, the, the question was really to understand a little bit about the concept of time, because in the thought that you know, there are just so many days left, 10 days or 12 days left 
of intensive practice, that thought is uh, making the mind a little agitated and a lot of a lot of thinking about it. Is that accurate? A little more. <laughs> a little more agitated. Um, again, it's not so much a question of stopping those thoughts from happening, but rather taking advantage uh, of those thoughts to really de- to get a very profound understanding of the nature of time. Because that can be an extremely transformative insight that carries over, that has implications a tremendous implication for how we live our lives. And what it takes is a very careful attention so that when future thoughts come, when planning thoughts come, when thoughts about the next 10 days come, any movement of the mind in thought that creates future If for one moment you can see very clearly and sharply and distinctly that the future is a thought, a huge weight is let go of. But it's not enough to know it intellectually because we can kind of grasp that idea. You have to really see it in the mind when those thoughts come, to be looking so carefully and so with a real deep sense of investigation of exactly how that thought in that moment is the creation of the future. And the future is nothing more than that creation. Does this make sense to you? It can be an amazing experience because we live our lives carrying the future on our shoulders. It's it's like no wonder we get tired. Because that's how we live our lives. We're continually planning and anticipating and worrying and all kinds of things. It's like we've built this edifice of future because we haven't seen clearly that all it is, is a thought. Is the same true for the past? Yes. Yes. And it's amazing. It's just... And it's not so difficult. Everyone here has the capacity to do that, having watched your mind for so long. But what it takes is... It takes looking. It takes a quality of interest to see how that is happening. But it's very worth doing because it's so transformative. And it's like the whole future just falls away. And it doesn't mean that you never plan again. And that's that's not the implication of it at all. You plan and you use that concept, you use the thought of future when it's necessary, 
but you know very well that it is just a thought. And so your relationship to it is totally different. Richard. seems to take place in a much more delayed time sense. And so I'm assuming that if there's a sensation happening in my body, I'm aware of it. It's happened a million times at some level of mind awareness before I become aware of it. What is the difference between the I awareness, the awareness in my mind that I identify myself with, and this Mm-hmm. This mental awareness quality, because mm-hmm. there's definitely a big difference, and I'm identified with one of them. Right. Let me see if I can rephrase it. The question was that the 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 mind knows objects with this amazing rapidity. According to Buddha's teachings, it's like 17 trillion times, you know, a moment. Things are arising, passing away. And so consciousness is there uh, well before we become aware that the object is there. That that our awareness of the object seems to be delayed. Um, And so the question was, What's the difference? Well, how does that happen? Um, I think it's the question revolves around the use of the word awareness to mean two different things. And I'd like to just distinguish consciousness from awareness or mindfulness. Okay. Consciousness is arising, as you say, zillions of time, you know, just very quickly. At a certain point, we become aware of the object. What you, what you are calling, I become aware, is the moment of mindfulness arising. Okay? The difference between consciousness and mindfulness, or consciousness and awareness, I'll give you an an example which I think will illustrate what the difference is. When you're lost in a thought, consciousness is there. You're not unconscious. Mindfulness is not there. You don't know that you're thinking. Yet, if somebody asked you afterwards what were you thinking, you could probably tell them. Because you weren't unconscious. There was consciousness present. But there was not the knowing, there was not the mindfulness that thinking is taking place. So consciousness is arising every moment, many, many times a moment. Mindfulness is not always arising, as should be obvious. (laughs) At a certain point in the process, mindfulness arises. And that's when what you call, I know the object. That's just a conventional way of saying, mindfulness has arisen. But consciousness has been there uh, preceding that. In the moments when I feel very mindful and very concentrated, I'm not aware of 
Mm-hmm. It's true, the mindfulness can get very strong so that it is really arising in very many of those moments of consciousness. And the, and the stronger the mindfulness gets, there is the sense of them really being quite, quite uh, continuous together. A non-Buddhist or non-Buddha? <laughs> Buddha. Nobody I've met. <laughs> it's said that mindfulness uh, is perfected in the mind of somebody who is fully enlightened, because then all ignorance is eradicated. And so until then, there may be some slight lag. (laughs) The other night you illustrated the five ways of experiencing what I guess Stephen called mundane karma uh, within our world. And my question is how your understanding or belief of super mundane karma evolved, if there's any way of experiencing it in any similar fashion, or is it something that evolves with the faith in the map of the path as we go deeper on the path? By super-mundane karma, do you mean karma extending over lifetimes? Beyond this, this lifetime. Okay. In the Buddhist vocabulary, that super-mundane would not be the word for that. Um, the question was how one can experience karma Mm. not only as happening uh, within one lifetime, in the ways I mentioned in the talk the other night, but also over many lifetimes. Um, There are three ways that come to mind. One way is, and this is, the Buddha talked about different ways of knowing things. One of the ways that he mentioned about knowing things is knowing things by inference. For example, when we become aware that thoughts or sensations or images arise and pass away in the moment, we, we have that experience, we can see that. We can infer that in the past it was like that, and in the future it's going to be like that. That's a kind of knowing by inference. And it can be pretty strong. I mean, from, from our experience in the moment, seeing the nature of things, we can infer that this is how it is now, and it will be like that way in the future. And so if we understand karma, in, in various of the ways that we can in this lifetime, we can know by inference. That's, that's one way. Another way, um, perhaps less, it should have come first really, less strong than that, might be by faith. You know, we practice and we see that so much of what the Buddha taught is true. As far as we go along the path, it all seems to be true. As, as far as we go, this is part of the teaching so we, we accept on faith. But that's really the, that would be the first. By inference would be the second. Uh, 
The third way would be to develop very strong samadhi, to develop the power of mind that can see past and future, you can see lifetimes, um, and then you would not see the exact workings of karma, but you would see the same patterns that we can observe within one lifetime. And these powers, they're mentioned in the suttas, they're mentioned in the discourses. People in present day have actually developed them. Actually, believe it or not, that question has an answer. (laughs) The question was, if you perform an act, what percentage of the karma from that act, the karmic result, will manifest in this lifetime, and what percentage will manifest in future lifetimes? (laughs) That question really opens up a whole discourse on Abhidhamma theory, which I will abbreviate very much, uh, basically because it's all I know about it. (laughs) And in some way it goes back to the question you were asking, Richard. Mm. There's a basic, very small unit of experience In other words, in every moment of hearing, or seeing, or smelling, or tasting, or sensing in the body, there is a unit of experience which is called a thought process. But thought doesn't mean words in the mind. In this Abhidhamic sense, it means a certain process of consciousness, certain number of moments of consciousness which all have the same object. And the number of moments of consciousness are, I forget, either 16 or 17. Do you remember? 17. The 17 moments of consciousness, which each take the same object. Those 17 moments of consciousness are divided into different functions. Some of the functions are karmic results from past actions. Some of the functions are karmic results from past actions. In other words, we hear something. And in in the basic unit of hearing is this process of 17 moments of consciousness. Some of those moments are karmic fruits. Seven of the moments is what's called active consciousness, which is how the mind is in the present relating to the object. And it's in those seven that we create new karma. In the others, we're just experiencing the fruit of a past action. 
But in those seven moments of consciousness, that's our mind active in the moment with respect to that object. Now, it's said, uh, this is, again, the theory. Let me preface this by saying I may not have this accurate, but you'll get an idea. The first moment of consciousness of those seven moments will bear karmic fruit in this life. I believe it's the last moment, the last of those seven, which bears karmic fruit in the next life. And the five in between <laughs> can bear karmic fruit anytime. I don't know what value that will have for you, but... <laughs> you ask the question. <laughs> so one-seventh definitely happens this lifetime, or it doesn't happen. <laughs> okay, enough. <laughs> but I d just as a point of interest, that's the level at which the study of Abhidhamma can go. I mean, it can, get, it can get just so, so precise. Yes. Maxine. Okay. The question is about, on the one hand, it's been said by someone that nothing is worth thinking about. On the other hand, a lot of the teaching is about the cultivation of right thought, of the motive behind actions being important, of the development of metta. So how do those two fit? I'll preface how they fit together with um, something that the Zen master Sansanim said that has bearing on this, and he expressed it very well. He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. There's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And it's very important to understand that paradox. And it's not really a paradox when you can understand that we operate or experiencing thing, experience things on different levels. So on the level, on the Vipassana level, where we are just sitting or walking, observing the arising and passing of phenomena, the content of the thoughts does not matter because our emphasis is on seeing the impermanence of them. And so when we're being mindful in that way, every time a thought arises, thinking, 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 and you see how it comes and goes, what the thought is saying, it, it does not matter. There's no bearing at all. When we're on the level of acting, 
not, not simply being aware of things arising and passing away, but actually manifesting some action, whether of mind or speech or body, then the content of thoughts is extremely important in all the ways you mentioned. Right? Then the motive is important, and whether it's skillful or unskillful is important, when we're acting, you know, when we're manifesting. Because then we're, then we're taking the content of the thought and actually manifesting the energy of it. Because we're doing that as opposed to simply seeing the emptiness of the thought, because we're manifesting its energy, then it's very important that we see what the quality of the energy is that we're manifesting. Do you follow? And so it just different situations, different mind activities call for different uh, responses. To the degree that we free ourselves from identification with thoughts as we practice doing the meditation, where we can just watch thoughts come and go and see how they're all empty, that they're basically phantoms, then we are less compulsively or mechanically or automatically identified with and manifesting different thoughts as they come, we have much greater ability to apply some discriminating wisdom. Because we've created that space in the mind. We're not continually caught up and hooked by each thought. We've created the space through the observation of them coming and going to then be able to choose. Okay, is this thought worth manifesting? Is it skillful? Is it wholesome? Is it not? So the two are very interconnected. The question was whether there's a way to relate to the noting mind as an object. I think that it's a question of degree. When the mindfulness is strong and you're noting, there will be awareness that you're noting. Whereas the awareness is that you, you, you know, you're mindful that you're noting. However, if you start noting the noting, you will find yourself in an infinite regression, <laughs> driving yourself crazy. <laughs> and so I would stay in that kind of middle ground between the one extreme would be to have it going so mechanically that, <laughs> that you're not aware, it, not aware that it's happening, which, ha which occurs you probably experienced, you know, you're walking and the noting is rising, falling. You know that the noting is going on, there's no mindfulness there uh, of the walking, of the noting. That's one extreme. The other extreme would be when you start noting the noting. And noting, 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 noting. <laughs> so there's a middle ground. You know, where the noting is happening, you, you're aware of it. 
but you're not focusing on it uh, as, the, as the object. Does that answer what you had in mind? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You say something about the uh, concept of servants in terms of of, of what? The question was about the relationship of practicing for one's own enlightenment and service to others, and whether um, after um, one is enlightened, like the Buddha, whether there was, um, whether he actually had a choice of whether to teach or not, or whether it was not a choice. No, just how those two fit together. Um, There are different sides to that that come to mind. One is um, that story of Mm-hmm. You know, the Buddha contemplating that choice after his enlightenment. For myself, I always had a bit of a hard time taking that literally. Because it just seemed, given the fact that he had just spent 90 billion eons of time you know, developing the paramis, to become Buddha for the sake of serving all beings. It, that, it didn't quite fit in my understanding that, you know, that doubt or question is, was a literal one. Um, and it, it very much seems to me that um, you cannot separate realization from manifestation of that realization. Because one will of necessity be manifesting that level of purity. Not only, not only that level, not only the level of the Buddha, but for all of us, we are always manifesting our level of understanding. And to the degree that we have purified our minds, to the degree that we've developed some wisdom and compassion, it will find expression in a variety of forms. 
I think that the danger in considering the question of service or manifestation, that the danger lies in having a model of how that manifestation should take place, or, or having a certain hierarchy uh, of values that, you know, going out and, you know, serving the poor and the hungry, or going out and teaching, or creating art, or sitting in a cave. To me, they are all equally valid ways of manifesting understanding. And now we each will find, not we'll find, we, we each, as I say, of necessity will manifest in the way that is appropriate to our own particular conditioning. So it's not so much a question of enlightenment for oneself versus service to others. I don't see it as a versus at all. I see that purification of mind manifests, must manifest, because it is what is happening. And it will manifest in a variety of ways. Now, to the degree that our mind is freed from greed and freed from hatred and freed from delusion, how can it help but be of service? And it's not service in any particular way. It's just because, because it is expressing that purity, the purity of not grasping and not judging and not comparing and not fearful. Did that? This is a very important question because I think that the dichotomy of this enlightenment for oneself or enlightenment for others, which has, is current now you know, in people's minds and has been sort of a dividing issue between whole traditions and schools of spiritual practice, and to my mind, is a totally straw figure. It's sort of like the difference between, you know, schools have been, whole schools of Dharma practice revolve about an idea of whether enlightenment is sudden or gradual. And really, I mean, huge, and polemics against, you know, each other. But when you stop to consider the question, to, to really consider what that's about, it seems very clear that in the moment of realization, it's sudden, and everything up to that point is gradual. <laughs> so I really don't see the conflict. And it's sort of the same thing with enlightenment for oneself or for others. It's, they cannot be separated. Ha, <laughs> ha, 
It served its purpose. I would too. <laughs> uh, the question was about something that was mentioned Thanksgiving morning about over the past few months uh, a certain group energy has been built up, you know, and to really uh, work with that and stay with it until the end. The question was, what is that group energy? What is that about? What does it mean? Just as an example, it is very hard being in the middle of the process to have a clear sense of it. From the outside, it is very palpable. You know, and sometimes when Michelle or Steve or myself or Sharon goes outside to do various things and we come back to the center, it's amazing. I mean, it's like walking into a totally different, a different energy field. One way of understanding that for yourself now, although it will become very obvious in a couple of weeks, a few of you have had uh, just occasion, some kind of business to take care of outside. Even if it only meant going to downtown Barrie, which is a very slow community. <laughs> I mean, it's not Manhattan. And yet even that, for people who have done that, the difference in the speed of things, you know, and the, the hecticness of it is so apparent because you have all slowed down tremendously and opened up tremendously, but because you're in the middle of it, you have no reference point from the outside to really uh, to see it clearly, but you will. And that's really what I was talking about. It's that happening with a hundred people. And it's, it's very real. That's why don't underestimate, don't undervalue your practice. And I know that, you know, you go through the ups and downs and the mind is wandering, you have pain and all that, and it may seem like nothing has happened, you know, in two months or three months. Not accurate. As I said in the beginning of the retreat, you cannot be a judge of your own practice. It's impossible because you don't have the perspective of looking at it from the outside.
walking meditation, somebody will go by and I'll note in the looking or something, but I'll also note that I catch the person in a different way than I did two weeks ago. And it could be anything that the aversion has deepened to the nickname takes a lot of new meaning. <laughs> okay. All of that changing for me. The comment was about how mm, in the last days he's connecting to people in the group in a different way. Um, almost with a deeper sense of all the reactions of the mind, whether it's of aversion or putting a nickname on people or attraction, whatever, the reactions are becoming more, uh, more to the surface. All of those are in the same category in terms of how to work with them as the future planning thoughts. It's not to fight with the fact that it's happening because it's natural that at this time, those are the kinds of things that are going to arise. So don't get into a struggle with the fact that they're arising. Rather, keep your effort very strong to catch them, to be mindful of them, to see how the mind is creating a whole world of concept. Because those are exactly the patterns which dominate our lives. We create all sorts of boxes that we put people into, you know, based on our impressions, not realizing, not being aware that we've just put them in a box, put them in a pigeonhole. This time is a perfect opportunity to see how that happens. In the same way that this is a perfect time to see how we create the future by identifying with certain kinds of thoughts. So it's fruitful, it's not a problem, if you work with it in a proper way. There's so much of, of the patterns of, of our daily life are going to begin to reveal themselves in these last days, you still have the silence and the clarity and the power of your practice to penetrate into it in a much deeper way. And so that's why I say don't, don't throw this time out, because it's tremendously rich. Not in the sense that these things are not going to arise, but in the sense of deepening the understanding of them. Okay. Last my, question. My question has to do with, I guess, the, the nature of evil. Uh, it seems that what, what we're doing, what the mind is, as you've described it, is, is a bunch of mental factors. Uh, there's sort of a struggle going on between good, good mental factors, the good guys and the bad guys, and we're here to help the good guys along. <laughs> well put. <laughs> what, what does that say about the nature of the, the universe that, that there seem to be two forces struggling and, and also the fact that uh, the good guys seem to be so outnumbered and, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and another part to that question is, is it possible to see things clearly um, to develop some kind of understanding and then to choose not to do good with it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, a, a third part 
<laughs> remember, I have to remember all this. Uh, well, I forgot the third question. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it seems like we're swimming upstream. Yeah, the, the question is, we're, we're here, we're developing indifference to, to uh, things. Why, why don't we just, why are we swimming upstream? Why don't we just go with the flow, sort of? And, you know, why are we struggling so hard with this? If, if, if you know, if we're developing indifference to all, you know, phenomena. I feel like a dullard, and you know, the second line pushes the first line out. <laughs> the question was about the nature of the mind containing wholesome factors and unwholesome factors, good and evil, and the good guys, bad guys. And it seems to be a, a battle between them, and that what we're doing here is strengthening the good guys strengthening the wholesome factors. But that it seems like... And what, what does that model say about the nature of the universe? Like there's this kind of battle going on between wholesome and unwholesome forces. And then when we look about, it seems like the unwholesome forces are much stronger. Was that one and two? All right, all right, okay. The second part was, is it possible to see the true nature of things and then to choose not to act in a wholesome way? Okay, let's deal with those two first. The third one, I guess, is I think that the model was accurate, you know, in a in kind of a rough way of speaking, that there are wholesome and unwholesome factors. You asked about it in terms of evil. I think that that word has a connotation that is not accurate. Because in some way that personifies the unwholesome factors. For example, if we say a person is evil, we are, we are really creating them right, in evilhood. Right? It's a very solidifying concept. I think a more dharmic way of understanding that energy would be ignorance. That there is ignorance in the world. Right? And there is wisdom. There are factors of ignorance and factors of wisdom. But when we see the unwholesome quality, the unwholesome forces as being functions of ignorance, not only does it not solidify it so much in a sense of a being, right? it's much less personalized, it also becomes much more workable. I mean, what do you do with evil? I mean, it's sort of like this absolute. Whereas ignorance can really be understood as part of a dynamic changing process. Ignorance is workable, which is exactly what we're doing. We're, we're working to 
transform ignorance into wisdom. On one level, you could say that the forces of ignorance seem predominant. Because in fact, it's exactly ignorance which is at the root of samsara. <laughs> you could see all of this as the manifestation of ignorance. Ignorance and craving, ignorance and desire. And so it's not surprising that it seems to be all around, <laughs> since it is the manifestation of it. But the great power and beauty of the Buddha's teaching and the Buddha's realization is that actually wisdom is stronger. And that these are not, fa- these are not qualities or factors outside of the mind. These are all qualities within each of us. And so even though ignorance may be very predominant, and we see it in our lives that it is, you know, we, we go through our lives for a long time not knowing what's going on, caught up in our thoughts, lost in our, our wantings, our desires, our fears. So the ignorance is very obvious, and yet in the center of that is this seed of wisdom the potential for wisdom, which is actually stronger. Stronger even than countless lifetimes led ignorantly. This one of the examples used is how in one moment of lighting a candle, it can dispel the darkness of eons of time. doesn't matter how long it's been dark, how pervasive the darkness is in the moment of lighting the candle the darkness is dispelled. And so each moment of wisdom, each moment of understanding, has this tremendously transforming, powerful effect. We can actually illuminate our minds, regardless of how much ignorance is there and for how long it's been there. So this tremendous power in what we're doing, it's not, it's not trivial. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.